0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Discipleship is essential to the Christian life, so churches should be seeking out ways to do this effectively. Jen Wilkins speaks to this in her talk, The Gospel and the Future of Bible-Centered Discipleship. We hope her message encourages and equips you to help others grow in Christ. I want to fix the problem of biblical illiteracy in the church. It's something I've wanted to do for many years, and now through the work that we do at The Village, I have the opportunity to put a dent in that through what we're doing here at the church and then with the voice that we have outside of this church, and I am so thankful for that. But this room tonight is a room full of people who I am hoping can help me quit my job. I want you to feel the way that I feel about this. I would like for you to lose a little sleep over the problem of Bible literacy in our churches today. One of the things that I love the most about the village, one of the things that makes it a unique place is that we are extremely vulnerable with one another. It is a place where we confess when there is something that we need to confess. And I have sat in home groups and I have sat in small groups and I've even sat in staff meetings where people have said things out loud where you have to catch yourself because you're like, oh, you know we're in like a whole room full of people, right? We have this really fantastic culture of authenticity, and I know that's a buzzword, but around here it is in the truest sense of authenticity here at the village where we tell you if we have a problem because we understand that confession is the first step, right, toward changing that situation. You know, Matt Chandler is our pastor, we're we're people who think about theological issues, and so when I got here 11 years ago, I thought to myself, maybe biblical illiteracy is not a problem at the village church. We know a lot of phrases, we know about doctrine, and yet it wasn't long before I realized that the problem that I was perceiving elsewhere was a problem here as well, and one of the things that has been great about the village church is because we are a place where we value confession. We've decided we're just going to say it out loud you know what, we don't we don't know the Bible like we should. And I wonder if you feel that as well. Because I travel around the country a lot and everywhere I go, I meet people who are beginning to be able to confess this. And sometimes there are people who actually aren't even that aware of it. Like I've told the story many times of the guy that I met on the airplane who had been helping himself to the airport bar before he got on and he shared his life story with me about where he was going to a golf tournament and all the things that he was going to do when he was there. Uh, he had a, a pretty well-formed social life um, as he was spilling out his story. And he continued to drink as he sat next to me on the plane. And so he kept getting warmer and warmer to his theme. And, you know, when you teach the Bible, you just keep waiting for that moment when he's going to turn to you and say, so tell me what you do. <clears throat> and sure enough, that moment eventually came. And I was like, well, here we go. And I said, well, I, uh, I, I'm a Bible teacher. And there was the silence that I expected. And then he leaned back and he looked at me and he goes, huh, I bet you know all 12 commandments. (laughs) No, no, drunk person. I do not know all 12 commandments. Would you like to tell me the extra two? And here's the thing, though. Here's what makes that story a little less funny. He was a super nice guy, don't get me wrong. But one of the things that he told me about his upbringing was that he was the product of a Christian education that he had grown up in the church. And I don't know about you, but I feel like someone who spent 12 years in Christian education and grew up in the church should probably know that there are 10 commandments. And yet yet he didn't. And then there's the time I was speaking at an event and a woman came to me quietly after the uh, evening session was over. She came and found me at my hotel room and and she said, I just, I have a question for you. And the question that she asked me was, she said, I I know that the Bible says, um, suffer not the little children to come to me. And so I don't understand if that verse is in there, why would the Lord allow uh, little children to suffer? well, what's going on there? There's a lot going on there, right? I mean, there's an obvious pastoral concern behind a question like that. A woman never asks a question like that without having a very personal reason for doing so. So I knew we were going to need to get to the personal part of it, but also, what was the bigger problem or part of the problem that I was dealing with? She's quoting from the King James, right? Which is fine. You're like, heck yeah, it's fine. It's the version Jesus carried. Okay, She's quoting from the King James, but she's misquoting it a little, right? Because what does the verse say? It says, suffer the little children to come to me. And what does it mean? It means allow the little children to come to me. But she's missed that. And that's, that's a fairly common thing. But do you know who this woman was? She was the pastor's wife. She'd been in church her entire life, grew up in the church. She led worship all over the country for different events. We don't know our Bibles. We don't know them like we should, and it is everywhere. I'm going to read to you from an article by Dr. Al Mohler. It's called The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy. It's Our Problem. It says, researchers tell us that the literacy crisis is worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than, more than two or three of the disciples. According to data from the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't name even five of the tw- Ten Commandments. No wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are, said George Barnum, president of the firm. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. Some of the statistics are enough to perplex even those aware of the problem. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We are in big trouble. This generation must get deadly serious about the problem of biblical illiteracy or a frighteningly large number of Americans, Christians included, will go on thinking that Sodom and Gomorrah lived happily ever after. The date on this article is June 29th, 2004. So in the 14 intervening years, do you think that the problem Dr. Mueller has described here has gotten better or worse. I think you're right. But you know what? Let's not just laugh at people who think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Let's see how we do. Do you have something to write on? You ready? No cheating. The Lord sees. We're gonna do 20 questions. You ready? Number one, name the first three Israelite kings. Number two, where did Jesus grow up? Number three, who lived in Ur and moved to a country he did not know? Number four, what were the occupations of Cain? And Abel. Number five, who prophesied? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Number six, how many books are in the Bible? How many are in the Old Testament? How many are in the New? That's one question. (laughs) Oh, we got a heckler. (laughs) Number seven, how many years of famine did Joseph prophesy to the Pharaoh? Number eight, what was the name of Jacob's youngest son? Number nine, what is Noah's first act when he emerges from the ark? Number 10, who were the sons of Zebedee? You're halfway there. Number 11, how many people were saved on the ark? Number 12, who said to whom? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Number 13, what type of animal did Balaam ride? Number 14, who commanded the sun and moon to stand still? Number 15, which of Jesus' miracles is recorded in all four Gospels? There's just one. Number 16, what is the other name for Mount Horeb? Number 17, what were the names of the mother and grandmother of Jacob? Number 18, which two men are recorded as not having died? Number 19: almost done. Who made the golden calf? And number 20: Which disciple found a coin in the mouth of a fish? Good. How you feeling right now? Good? Let's see how it goes. Number one: first three Israelite kings: Saul, David, Solomon. Number two, where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth. Who lived in Ur and moved to a country he did not know? Abraham. What were the occupations of Cain and Abel? Farmer, shepherd. Who prophesied for unto us a child is born? Isaiah. How many books are in the Bible? How many in the old? How many in the new? Okay. How many years of famine did Joseph prophesy? Seven. What was the name of Jacob's youngest son? Benjamin. Benjamin. What is Noah's first act when he emerges from the ark? He builds an altar and sacrifices. Who were the sons of Zebedee? James and John. How many people were saved on the ark? Eight. Who said to whom man looks on the outward appearance? God to Samuel. That's good. Oh, we got some good students up here in the front. Either that, if you Googled it, I will find you. <laughs> Number 13, what type of animal did Balaam ride? Oh, thank you. There it is. A donkey. Um, where are we? Number 14, who commanded the sun and moon to stand still? Joshua. Which of Jesus' miracles is recorded in all four Gospels? Feeding of the 5,000. What's the other name for Mount Horeb? Sinai. What were the names of the mother and grandmother of Jacob? Rebekah and Sarah. Which two men are recorded as not having died? Enoch and Elijah. Who made the golden calf? Aaron. Which disciple found a coin in the mouth of a fish? Peter, that's so good. How did you do? How many, of you, how many of you got more than 16? Raise your hands. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Even those of you who got more than 16, can you feel in the pit of your stomach how you're glad that there weren't other things that were being asked? Listen. We all need to acknowledge this. I keep getting my bio put up as a Bible teacher. Someone put Bible expert in my bio one time, and I was like, no, please, no. Because we all share this, probably an unprecedented level of biblical illiteracy. And listen, if you're in here right now and you are in church leadership and you had trouble answering those questions, I wanna say to you, Remember the way that you are feeling right now because the people who sit in your pews every week walk in with that. Every week, and they're afraid to let you know, hey, I don't know my Bible. I don't know my Bible. Listen, the church is staring into a post-Christian culture, and it will not do for us to not know firsthand our sacred text. The secular humanist and the false teacher rely on us not knowing what this says. There are very real consequences for biblical illiteracy, not just attacks from outside the church on what we believe, but from inside the church where a false teacher sets himself up. Have you ever known someone who wouldn't seek medical attention because they believed it was an act of faithlessness? that kind of an outlook relies on biblical illiteracy. Have you ever known a parent who trained up a child in the way that they should go and then wondered if God was good when their child left the faith and didn't return? That's a Bible literacy issue. It's a misunderstanding that a proverb is not a promise, it's a principle. But when people don't know that, it can cause them to doubt the very God of the universe of being good and faithful to his word. Have you ever known someone to pray in Jesus' name thinking that by speaking the name of Jesus like an incantation or by gathering the requisite number of two or three that they could then obligate the Lord to do whatever their request was? That relies on biblical illiteracy. The problems that beset the church with regard to doctrine and with regard to weak faith almost always relate to having only a secondhand knowledge of our text. In fact, I would say that the church has come to a place where the common experience of most of us is that we come and sit in a room where we hear teaching over a text that we have spent no time in ourselves before we listen to the teaching. And we love to consume things that are easy to take in podcasts and commentaries and study Bibles and all of these words that people have said about the Bible. And increasingly, we have become a generation of believers who are content to be curators of the opinions of others about a book that we do not trouble to read. This must not be so. Keeps me up at night crazy-eyed in a bathrobe, praying for unemployment, help me. How did we get here? How did we get here? In the 1780s, churches initiated a little thing called Sunday school. Do you know why Sunday school was originally started? It was started so that children could learn to read because children worked six days a week. And so it was the only place that they could go to actually gain an ability to read. And guess how they were taught to read? Using the Bible. So the church did this beautiful thing of not just training the public to be literate, but training them to be biblically literate at the same time. And then guess what happened in the 1870s? In the United States, we instituted public school. And at that point, the literacy problem, the general literacy problem, became one for the state. And so Sunday school now existed as an institution within our churches, but Sunday school was now free to focus more on just discipleship, on developing people in their knowledge of their own faith. But over time, as we saw a shift in the church toward individualism and consumerism as part of the larger shift within our culture... We change the highest value of Sunday school and gatherings like it, from being to learn to being community. Anybody in a church that values community a whole whole lot? Now, is that wrong? No, it's just that that's where the pendulum has swung for about the past 20 years or so, And what we have seen are vanishing environments dedicated to learning our sacred text. And the result has been well-connected communities. Of biblically illiterate believers. We know each other very well. We can go deep, we can confess to one another, but guess what we don't know? We don't have firsthand knowledge of our sacred text. We are always taking someone else's word for it. So there are some structures that have taken a hit within the church, but then there are also some common misconceptions that have come up through the years that have fed the Bible literacy crisis. And one of these is this. All contact with the Bible is good contact. Like, hey, as long as I'm like reading this or opening it and flipping to a verse and reading it, that's good, right? It's all forward movement. And the answer is no, actually, that's, that's not true. The Bible is a book and deserves to be treated with the respect that we would give to any other book, at least. I mean, it's much more than just a book, but it deserves at bare minimum that we would treat it the way that we treat any other book. And many of you treat the Bible in ways that you don't treat any other book that you own. You don't take the works of Shakespeare and flip to the middle of scene two, act five, and read a few words out of it and ask how it should change your life today. Why? Because you understand that when Shakespeare wrote his plays, he wrote them starting in a particular place and ending in a particular place and building ideas and themes throughout, and that he wrote with a purpose. So you show honor to what he wrote by reading it the way that was intended to be read, but not this. Man, this is like magic in here. I just turn to whatever I want. Holy Spirit, just... All contact with the Bible is good contact, but no, there are actually ways that we can come in contact with the Bible that can detract from our ability to understand it. It's important that we take the Bible on the terms that it is given to us, 66 books, each of them with a human author inspired by the Holy Spirit, taking an idea and starting in one place and developing it to another place. All contact with the Bible is good contact. No, that's not actually true. And a second misconception that we run into constantly is this. Everything is a Bible study. Everything. So I've written now three books that are not Bible studies. They do have some discussion questions at the end of the chapters and some verses that people can look up, but it just about kills me when someone comes to me and says, oh my gosh, we're doing your Bible study in his image because how do you gently say, that's not a Bible study? Well, you say it on a live stream, a pre-conference at the SBC, so then they won't say that to you anymore. Listen, I write Bible studies, and I'm telling you, that's not a Bible study. And so when you gather a group of people to go through that book, I'm glad because I cared enough to take a year out of my life to write it, but I'm telling you, you're not doing a Bible study. You're doing a book study where you're looking up some verses and you're learning a topic in a way that I hope sticks to your ribs, but it's not a Bible study. You go to the Average Church website and you look at what they've listed as the Bible studies, and you can get anything out there from a book on finances to something that's actually a line-by-line study of the book of Philemon. And when we call them all Bible studies, we run into a situation that I get. This is the most frequent email I get. Are you ready for it? I have been in the church my whole life. I have attended Bible study my whole life, and no one has taught me to study the Bible like you have. That's not okay, because our people have told themselves, my church is offering a Bible study, and I'm going to go to it, and then they get there, and I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I feel like they should have actually studied the Bible. When we are not precise in our terminology, we can tell our people that they are studying the Bible when, in fact, they're not. And listen, topical studies are important. We need studies that are integrating broad ideas for us. The problem with topical studies is they're not foundational. They rely on a foundational, underlying, literate reading of the Scripture to be able to do what it is that they do. And yet many churches have gotten to the point where all they're offering are topical studies. Because we think our people won't come to something that is a serious minded look at the scriptures where they're actually learning the text so that they could take what you just took, a pop quiz, and just be able to answer it. And so instead of growing in their confidence to open the scripture, they're actually eroding their confidence every time they do another topical study because it enhances for them the sense that there are experts and there are amateurs. And guess which one I am? I'm the amateur. The person who wrote this, man, they're the expert. That's varsity Christian level right there. My goal anytime I write or teach a Bible study is not just that those who are in the study would learn the particular book of the Bible that we are in, but that they would, as a result of learning better tools, be more comfortable every time they open their Bibles after that point everything is not a Bible study. And when we parse our terms a little better, we can help our people to be able to choose which environments they most need to be in based on where they are developmentally in their faith. So common misconceptions, all contact with the Bible is good contact. No. Everything is a Bible study. No. And then third, learning the Bible should be easy. Learning the Bible should be easy. I have this distinct memory of my mother telling me about how when we were little children and she was just so fried, you know, from trying to raise all those babies. And she said, I would just, I wanted to read my Bible. I was so tired and I would get in bed at night and I would just put it on my head and pray that the Holy Spirit would let it all just like run into my brain. And I can totally relate to that because I had four little children all at the same time. So I, I certainly would not shame her around that. But realistically, many of us are functionally thinking this way, right? If I just honor spending time here, then it just, it has to work out, right? Like I'm gonna do my quiet time every day and and it's just gonna be honored because I was faithful to come to the text because learning the Bible should be easy. The Holy Spirit should just let me know what it is that I need. 1 Peter 2.2 says to new believers that they should crave the pure Milk of the word like newborn infants. Now, I don't mean to make half the room uncomfortable, but that's a breastfeeding image. Listen, I'm sorry. We get sportsing illustrations all the time, and I'm as excited as the next person (laughs) that LeBron just won the Stanley Cup, but just hang with me. (laughs) Are you familiar with nursing at all? because here's the thing with nursing. It is natural. There's nothing more natural than that in the world. It is absolutely necessary. But is it easy? No. (laughs) The women are all like, breach it. No. No, it's actually a skill. It's a skill that a newborn infant has to learn, and it is hard. And once the infant has learned to feed that way, then the infant moves on, starts growing teeth, and learns to eat other food. And have you ever fed a six-month-old rice cereal or something like that? It's a mess. Next, they have to learn to eat solids, and then they have to learn to eat anything else that gets put on the table in front of them, and then they learn to make good choices about what it is they're going to eat and what upsets their digestion and what doesn't. And then they learn to discern between what is dangerous to eat and what is safe to eat. And by the time they're a 20-year-old, like the 20-year-old who is in my home or when they're home from college, they're not walking into the kitchen and expecting me to just drop an eye into them and feed them whatever. Why? Because they know how to feed themselves. And yet we have the equivalent in the church today often of new baby believers who we just pop an IV in and say, you know what, we're just going to download a whole lot of stuff to you. Don't you worry about where it came from or how you can acquire it yourself. And they sit for years passively trying to take in what they should be actively able to acquire learning the Bible should be easy? No. It's not easy. It might get easier, but I don't think that it ever gets easy. And let me ask you this. Why was this the part of discipleship that you thought would be easy? I mean, you've counted the cost with regard probably to your finances and your time. You've probably said some things about being willing to suffer for the Lord, to take up your cross and follow him. Do you understand that submitting yourself to this is part of that? So why why would we think it would be easy? In fact, why would we think that anything that was worth doing would be easy? So now I would just like to talk you through why we need Bible literacy, which I've touched on a little how we can give it to our people, and where we can best give it to our people. First, why we need it. I've mentioned that it guards against false teaching. How does it do that? Because listen, I'm not talking about people being able to explain the Trinity to you, although I'm for that. I'm talking about basic comprehension level mastery of the text guards against false teaching. In order to twist or pull something out of context, people have to not know where it came from and what it said on either side of it. So I travel quite a bit, and they always have those travel magazines in the, in the back of the seat back, and um, I pulled one out recently and looked at it, and there was an article in there on, on Budapest. I've never been to Budapest. So it was really interesting to read about restaurants I might go to or places I might stay, and they all looked amazing in the magazine. But then I flipped a few pages over, and there was an article on Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a place that I've been a whole lot. And they were listing off which restaurants to go to or which places to stay, and how do you think I felt about their recommendations about a place that I've already been? I was like, that restaurant's no good. Why would they put that in here? I wonder if someone is actually paying the travel magazine to put that restaurant in here. Do you see how different it is when you know the neighborhood the way that you read those articles. I've walked those streets. I've eaten in those restaurants. I know that neighborhood. You're not going to pull one over on me and just tell me to go somewhere and I'm going to believe it. The Bible is the same way. Every book is a neighborhood that we need to take a walk around and get to know so that when we hear teaching over it, we can identify whether what we are hearing is accurate to the neighborhood or not. Firsthand knowledge of the text is a massive first step to guard us against false teaching. The second reason we need Bible literacy is because it undergirds the study of doctrine. It undergirds the study of doctrine. When people know their Bibles better, they begin to see things like the doctrine of the Trinity jumping out of the text at them, and it's a pretty great feeling. They begin to understand why we talk a certain way about justification and why we talk a certain way about sanctification and glorification and all of these topics that fell to them like things that someone else talked about all the time begin to be things that they develop a vocabulary around. So when we grant people the gift of Bible literacy, we end up reinforcing unity of belief around essentials. So all of the things that live in the closed-fisted hand of theology begin to emerge from the text for them in a way that they're like, oh, that's why we all say in the creeds that we believe that Christ will come again bodily, right? Right? So Bible literacy will reinforce our sense of orthodox faith. It will begin to ground in us these things that people are not fighting about anymore. But it will do another thing. Those things that we are all still fighting about, those secondary issues, it will help us to be more charitable with one another. I often think that people think I'm an advocate for Bible literacy because if we all just knew this better, we would all agree on all things, but I am nobody's fool about that. I can tell you what I have seen happen in myself. The secondary issues that I care about deeply, that in my 20s, I used to just want to go at it head to head with other people who disagreed. The longer I have spent in the scriptures, the more charitable I am toward those who hold other positions. Because I can see where their arguments are coming from. Doesn't mean I agree with them. Just means that I don't have permission to label them as heretics and crazy people because they're reading the same Bible I am. They're just interpreting it differently than I am. Bible literacy can help us to be more charitable with one another around secondary or tertiary issues. And Bible literacy, thirdly, diminishes the expert-amateur divide by giving everyone tools to know the Bible better themselves. Our tagline for classes at the Village Church is, the Bible is for everyone. I wish I had come up with it because it's so good. The Bible is for everyone. And yet when I read it, do you know what I knew? I can't quit yet. That's so good. Why we need Bible literacy? It guards against false teaching, undergirds the study of doctrine, diminishes the expert-amateur divide. How do we give it to our people? First, we must help them to distinguish between devotional reading, topical studies, and Bible studies. Give them the right vocabulary around what the things are that we are offering. Devotional reading and topical studies are not bad but they are not foundational. We must have rooms where we are doing actual Bible study. Where does each happen? Where should each happen? And allocate our time and our resources accordingly. Second, we must distinguish between passive and active learning environments. In a passive learning environment, you get a download of information. And in an active learning environment, students are being trained to think and to learn and to do work on their own. I love the Sunday gathering. I love expository preaching. I think it is invaluable. It is still a passive learning environment. All that means is that while it is essential to the health of the church, it is not the only thing that the church needs for us to be forming people into biblically literate believers, unless you're having some dialogic back and forth with your pastor while he's preaching where you can raise your hand and go, I got a question on that. One form of passive environment is a lecture environment, and the other form is dialogic. And if passive learning environments are sufficient for the health of the church, then why don't we all just podcast? Let's get out of here. Distinguish between devotional, topical, and Bible studies. Distinguish between passive and active learning environments. And third, teach your students a long-term view. No more of this, I'm going to give 15 minutes to the Bible, and I'm going to require it to give me something back to get me through the day. They need to begin to regard that their time with the Bible will have a cumulative effect but may not yield something in the first five or ten minutes that they sit down with it. Help them to have a long-term view and give them tools to get there. Next, we can ask our people to study entire books of the Bible from start to finish. Genesis has 50 chapters in it. When are you going to knock out that sermon series in six weeks? When's your home group Going to walk you through a serious discussion of 66 chapters of Isaiah. Right? Where are the rooms where this happens? We should guard them and we should resource them. And we should give people the ability to study entire books of the Bible from start to finish. Why? Because that honors the way that they were written. Next, we should give people tools for comprehension, interpretation, and application. We should train them to ask, what does the text say? Then what does the text mean? And then lastly, how should it change me? Unfortunately, what often happens today is we have become application hogs. And we start with the third question, how should it change me? And we just read, how should it change me? How should it change me? How should it change me? You're not allowed to ask that question until you've spent a lot of time on those first two. Because if you haven't tried to figure out what it says and then what it means, how can you possibly arrive at the correct application point? Next, we should teach our people genres and their rules. I gave you an illustration earlier about training up a child. It's very important that people understand the rules of historical narrative in the Bible. It's very important that they understand the rules of poetry versus prophecy, cuts out a lot of the nonsense that happens when people sit down alone with the Bible and try to make sense of it if we equip them with some basic comprehension tools. And we should teach our people to honor the context, to pay attention to what is around what they are reading. We should teach them to study all of the Bible, not just their favorite parts. I bet everyone in this room has studied the book of Ephesians multiple times, and I bet none of you has studied Jeremiah. Maybe not none. I'm using hyperbole after the pattern of our Lord. (laughs) We need to teach our people to get lost, that they should open a text and read it and feel what they don't know and they should sit in it. They should not immediately medicate that dissonance by looking up the answer because the learning process, in order for it to have a long-term impact, requires that we feel the dissonance of not knowing before we can have the relief of knowing Now, lastly, where do these things happen? Where does Bible literacy grow? It happens in learning environments that are dedicated and that are active. By dedicated, I mean that the primary stated goal of the gathering is learning versus building community or having prayer or worship or sharing or any other thing. We carve out these spaces and we say, this room is where we will learn. We will not apologize for it, and we will make sure that we stay on track for that purpose, specifically guarding it to learn the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't have those other elements involved, but it means that our highest stated goal for the room would be learning. We're going to tell people, yes, we want you to come here, and we want you to learn. Plain and simple, if you sign up for the Bible study, you will study the Bible. So dedicated learning environments, and secondly, active learning environments. As I've mentioned before, it is where a student is challenged to do the work. Howard Hendricks says, never do for your student what your student can do for themselves, which means we are not spoon-feeding you. We are giving you the tools. Hey, you should look this up. Hey, look at this repeated term. Hey, what theme are you seeing here? We're going to ask you questions, and we're going to ask you to engage in the learning process with us. My son um, is a, plays the piano, plays the piano beautifully. It took a long time to get to that point. He would not uh, regret that I have said that to you today. I want you to imagine if I had dropped him off at his piano teacher's house and she had decided, you know, it's really too hard for me to teach him the piano. Hey, Matt, I'm just going to play the piano for you for 30 minutes every, you know, twice a week when you come over here. Do you know how mad I would have been? He would not have learned the piano. He would have learned things about the piano. He would have learned things about classical music. But her job is to teach him the piano. And that's what we need to view ourselves as Christian educators as doing. Because while learning the Bible is natural and absolutely necessary, it is not easy. It requires training. These active environments should be teacher-led versus peer-led led. There should be someone there who has the gift of teaching and is willing to share it with the church. They should, if at all possible, involve individual work, group work, and a teaching time. Individual work pushes us to think on our own. Group work pushes us to examine what we've thought about in the context of community. Teaching then begins to draw us toward a collective understanding of the text. My daughter, Mary Kate, is here right now. She's studying chemistry at Texas A&M University. And she's studying chemistry because it seemed important to her if she was going to deal with chemicals that she know what would blow things up and what would add to the common good. Do you know what she didn't do when she wanted to learn chemistry? She did not gather with a group of her peers and have a feelings-level discussion of the textbook. She believed there was more at stake than that. Our learning environments should reflect the same level of sober-mindedness around something that is far more important than learning chemistry. These learning environments should also be accessible. We should strive as churches to remove as many barriers to entry as possible by placing them at times where they can be attended and by making sure that children are cared for. If that is a factor, that we accommodate school schedules and bedtimes and all of these things so that we say to our people, we will remove all of the things that make it hard to get here. And when we get here, guess what we're going to do? We're going to raise the bar. We're going to ask a little more of you. Because you know what our formula for Christian discipleship has been over the last 20 years? We're just going to keep making this lower and lower and lower. You don't think people perceive the message that that carries? And I know what you may be thinking. You may be thinking, our people won't do that. That's the most common objection I hear. Oh, I may be here, but our people at my church won't do that. You know what I would say to you? You're absolutely right. Your people will never rise to a standard that you do not set. But what we have found is that when we raise the bar, people welcome it. They run to it. Listen, discipline is not dead. It just chases the most compelling and actionable message. If your people can do whole 30, they can commit to serious Christian discipleship. As a church, we should compel them and we should train them. Have we communicated to them that this is dull or of secondary importance or that it's the work of the experts and not theirs? It is our high calling in the face of a Bible literacy crisis to raise the bar in an age of low expectations. And how do we do that? Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, that's a name you hear every day. Anybody know what he wrote? It's The Little Prince. He wrote The Little Prince. This is a quote from him. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Are you a leader in the local church? Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea and help them build that boat because there's a lifetime of sailing to be had. Help me quit my job. Help me quit my job. May we be the generation that says, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC Podcast. You can keep up with our ministry at ERLC.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Podcast. Come back next week for an important conversation about refugees.